So, Umberto, let's read emails that people have sent to you and me, patrons have sent us emails, and let's try to answer them in a way that uh, is satisfying to both them, us, and the listeners. What do you say? That's always a good plan. This is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a therapist and a professor. My name is Umberto Castaneda, and I develop inkless pens. So, anonymous patron here says, I have a question, I have a broad question to ask. It's about virginity. Whoa. I lost my virginity pretty late in life at 26. And for a good, good percentage of my early 20s, I hated myself for being a virgin. Oh. I felt gross, ugly, and awkward. I put women on a pedestal, and I felt completely undesirably, undesirable sexually. A lot of this had to do with the fact that I would obsessively Google things like the effects of being a virgin late in life. Oh. And I would read articles by psychologists and sex therapists who would argue things like the following. Women can't trust male virgins because men are expected to lead. The longer you remain a virgin, the more likely you're going to have sexual problems when you finally do have sex. Your lack of sex life is evidence that, you're, that you aren't a good person. <laughs> uh, Jordan Peterson argues this on the Joe, on the Joe Rogan podcast. Oh, jeez. When I read these things, it crushed me because psychologists with doctor in front of their name were confirming my horrible beliefs. My therapist has helped me develop a different perspective, but I'd like a second opinion. Is there any legitimate reason to be ashamed of being a virgin late in life? Is there any reason to believe women don't trust you if you're a virgin? Does virginity cause intimacy problems later in life? And I'm just also interested in your opinion on male virginity more generally. Berto, what do you think? Wow, what a topic, man. And oh, I feel horrible. Imagine imagine anything that you're like looking up and you're a little afraid about. I mean, I do this all the time, you know. I you know, I'm a little bit of a hypochondriac, so I so I'm like, "Oh, my elbow's hurting. Let's look up. Uh what could elbow hurting mean?" And then all these psychologists are like, "Oh, actually, that's actually a mental thing and it means that you're, you know, you're really ineffectual and you're going to fail after the age of 40 and I mean, just anything that you look up and all of a sudden these experts start telling you, yes, not only are your fears real, they're worse than you think. That's horrible. Yeah. And, and so unhelpful. None of what he listed, uh, or they uh, seemed helpful at all. Okay. So that's the first thing. The second thing is, um, I definitely take, I mean, take issue with the notion that, that, we, you know, we talked uh, recently about like things like fat shaming and stuff. There's all sorts of shaming in our society. There's certainly uh, virgin shaming, at least in some circles. Um, but there's so many other things that you might not have done by the age of 26 or 30, right? W- which ones do we pick? Like you may not have bought a house. You may not have traveled outside of your city. You may not have had like a death in the family. You may not have like there's so many things. But like, oh, but virgin, virginity is a thing. Like your molecules of your appendage going into the molecules of another thing, that is like, we, we have to shame you for that. I, I just find it so sad. Yeah, I, I agree. <laughs> I think everyone knows what I'm going to say to this uh, patron emailing in. Everything you have read on the internet and have heard that you listed here is total bullshit. It's not only wrong, but it is actually uh, just fucking bullshit. It's something that not only we should go, oh, you know, that's wrong. We should also fight against it and, and, and cringe and 
uh, ridicule. We should ridicule <laughs> such messages because they are harmful. They're not only wrong, but they're harmful. Yeah. Um, and they're just so fucking ignorant, you know? Right. And, like, like someone could say, you know, um, ants are usually red. Yeah. Well, that's wrong, but it's probably not that harmful. Yeah. This right. is both. <laughs> right. Um, uh, except for the ant racist. Maybe ant racist. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and at first, you know, when I read your email, Anonymous Patron, you're like, you know, psychologists and sex therapists argue these things. And I was like, well, you know, a lot of you're probably misinterpreting that. But, you know, then you mentioned Jordan Peterson and da da da. And I was like, yeah, it's not uncommon. I think Jeez. also, you know, I think I've started to realize just how powerful Google and Facebook are at. Uh, customizing our content for us. Mm. And, and it's, and, you know, we tend to think about the echo chambers of Democrats and Republicans, but the, the, the echo chambers are so much more narrow. Like the sort of things I watch on YouTube are um, like lately I've been, uh, I, I like old tech, you know, like yeah. I watched this one video of a it's guy. So funny. I, keep going, but you're going to find it funny too when I tell you what I tell you. This, there's, I think he's like Scottish or he's British or some sort. And, he, and what he, he does these long nerdy videos on like an eight track uh, uh-huh. tape machine that he bought on eBay. Oh, wow. And he takes it apart and he like fixes it and he shows how it works. And, and he talks about kind of the history of eight track. And he's our age. So he talks about his memories of eight track when he was young. And, and he has this whole wall of all these like old reel to reels. And uh, the, one of the ones he did recently was there was a thing that came out because, you know, when CDs came out, it sort of like revolutionized everything. And then when right. MP3, but, but as CDs were kind of coming online, uh, people still people had records. And this, there was this one record player that had a sort of a laser scanner that could figure out where every track was. Mm. So you'd put the thing in like a, like a CD and you could, you could say, I want to oh, play track three. Nice. And it had um, a needle on the other side, on the bottom side, so you could... You didn't even have to flip the... Right. Whoa! And so, now, uh, as soon as CDs came out, it was like, why would you have that, you know? (laughs) And it's probably really expensive. But it's such a cool thing, and he took it apart, he fixed the belt, you know, and... And so now I'm I'm getting fed all these other YouTube videos that are related to that, and I'm nerding out on that kind of stuff, and and it was like... I'm in this, and this guy has millions of views. So, so you, you want to know what videos I've been watching over the last 48 hours? Not even like recently, like literally in the last couple of days. It's an eight-part series of the history of Commodore computers by this guy called the 8-Bit Nerd. And it's the same thing. And he you know, starts with the pet and all these things. And he like opens them up and he talks about all the chips. Same thing. Right. And then I get all the recommendations. Right. Yeah. So... These echo chambers, I'm guessing, anonymous patron, uh, are uh, you, the echo chamber you fell into based on whatever algorithm uh, detected you was uh, virgin shaming. Because yeah. I, 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 my echo chamber doesn't have virgin shaming. Right. You know, I haven't, I haven't heard virgin. That's true. I don't come across that right. normally. But um, so you might be getting that point zero zero one percent of mm-hmm. mental health people who are virgin shaming based on the algorithm. And so it's just another thing to think about, you know, for all of you, depending on what sort of experience negatively you're having, right. whether it be propaganda that you find yourself in, you know, um, whether Democrat or Republican, anti-vax, you know, whatever it is, you know, you just have to think about what, how has the internet uh, affected 
my views just based right. on an algorithm that is that is an inhuman thing just trying to guess at what I'm going to click on and, and mm-hmm. so they can sell me more ads, you know. Uh, but anyway, so to get to your questions, anonymous patient, you know, should you be ashamed of being a virgin? You know, no. we're, we're both saying no. Um, so let me let me. I always say this: shame has purpose. It's 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 not a bad thing to be ashamed, but shame has a purpose to get us to not do things right. uh, that are empirically bad, like slapping someone across the face, right? Like stealing your friend's. Uh, wallet. Yeah. Uh, you you will be shamed for that, and you should feel ashamed. Right. Um, for not giving to charity when you could give to charity, uh, you should be shamed for that. Right. And you should feel ashamed uh, because there's morality involved. You are you're either through omission or actually actively harming another human being when you don't have to. Yeah. Uh, being a virgin has nothing to do with that. Right. Being a virgin, you're not harming anyone. There's no harm. In fact, you're avoiding harm potentially. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> maybe, but but it's not like having sex is shameful. Right. There are very few things that humans will do that is worthy of self or other shame. Yeah. Uh, killing a puppy, running over a dog, uh, killing a cat, like, you know. This, virgin shaming someone. Virgin shaming someone. Right. Okay, those these are things very rare things in human you know repertoire that I would constitute and most people would constitute as like worthy of shame. Being a virgin is not one of them, so we just have to say no. It's you shouldn't be ashamed of being a virgin. That's ridiculous and makes sense given our society. And I will say that you know the the virgin stigma is pervasive in mm. our society. I mean, it is. Um, you know, sitcoms will make jokes about it. Right. Uh, you know, sexuality in general is, it's like, it's the same with grief. And I So I'll give the grief example, then I'll give the sexuality example. If when your spouse, so Buzz Aldrin, mm-hmm. his wife died. Was that recent? Or? This is, I don't know, 10 years okay. ago or something. And he remarried within nine or okay. 18 months or something. And there were newspaper articles talking about how it was disgraceful that he didn't grieve long enough. What? So, but that's a point of view. Like, one, how do they know he's not grieving? Right. Two, uh, there's a unseemliness that you will be judged if you don't perform the grief ritual for the public. Unbelievable. On the flip side, if you are grieving your spouse or anyone, like beyond a certain point, people will say you're dwelling on the past. Yeah. So I have. So in the beginning, I was just like, oh, people will shame people f- for not grieving long enough. But then I started also getting all these examples of like, y- you didn't, you grieved for too long. Yeah. And so what's the optimal range of grief? And my uh, supposition is that there is, there is none. Right. Well, like the movie uh, Swingers, where at the beginning of the movie, his friends are like, dude, I mean, this is not a death, but it, it was a painful breakup. Like, dude, you got to move on. You got to move on. Right. You're, you're dwelling on the past. You're right. Grieving too long. Right. But imagine if, boom, next day he's dating someone else. They'd right. be like, you're, you're taking it too fast. Yeah. We, we will judge anyone for any reason regarding any grief. <laughs> Given pre- the opportunity. Presentation. The same has to go for uh, when you have sex. That's right. Um, if you have sex, whenever you have sex, you will be judged. Right. You either had sex too early or you had sex too late. Yeah. 
um, you have you have too much sex or you have too little sex. Right. There, there's no there's no zone where you, people are be like, you know what, you are living the exact <laughs> amount of sex at the exact time. That is, I think you might be right, man. Because like I'm, I'm picturing, well, well, what if you know I'm like, well, you're married and you have sex three times a week. Nope, because someone's gonna say that's too much. You should be more focused on your kids. Or someone's gonna say what you should have three times a day to keep the marriage alive. Yeah. It, it, there are certain things like grief and virginity that we're so childish around that and we're just innately uncomfortable and therefore we interpret that as a as evidence of shame right allowance so so no you should not be saying the other thing is is we have to scrutinize the word virgin it's a weird word word and it holds a lot of weight you know yep. usually it refers to heterosexual intercourse um, right? Like yeah. whether or not you've put penis in vagina. P and V. Um, many people go their entire lives never having heterosexual intercourse. Right. And they're perfectly happy, well-rounded, likable people. Right. Uh, lesbians, for example, yeah. who uh, didn't have a weird phase in college, yeah. um, have never had heterosexual intercourse. Right. And they're perfectly happy and fine. And there's nothing ashamed. So, <laughs> and they're technically, I guess, still a virgin. By that definition. Right. Um, so, you know, what's the big deal? So same with, same with, uh, with gay guys, right? Right. Same exactly. Thing. Right. Exactly. So, you know, it's a massive social construct that virgins are losers that somehow, again, putting these molecules in another <laughs> set of molecules, somehow like you've crossed the Rubicon. And what if you wore a condom? Ah, you didn't even make full contact, dude. Yeah. Ah. Um, so the other thing is, you know, let's say you meet your soulmate out there, anonymous patron. But for whatever reason, you can't have P and V sex. Uh there's a functional problem, a structural problem, a trauma problem, or, you know, whatever. It's yeah. just, or, you know, you're, you're paralyzed from, yeah. from the waist down or something. Um, does that mean that you have to leave each other? Does that mean you don't have a real relationship? Does that mean you're not a real adult? Does this mean you're not a real man for the rest right. of your life? It's completely stupid. It's, it, <laughs> you know, we put this huge weight on, you know, penis and vagina, and it's like, uh, yep. It's not. It's just an old construct from I don't know religion, I suppose. Um, the other thing you know you ask is you know women can't trust male virgins because men are expected to lead. Berto, what do you think about that one? Uh, well, so is is it societally like historically a thing where like men are the leaders? Yes, uh, uh, unfortunately that that seems to be the case in in a lot of our modern especially Western parts. Um, now, does that mean women don't trust? Uh, I have no data on that. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if there's any, any validity to that. Yeah. I doubt it, but... Yeah, this makes no sense. Now, can, can, a, can an individual woman have a belief based on stigma and propaganda that a virgin is a bad mate because he can't lead? Sure. But, you know, you don't need that person in your life and you don't want to date someone like that. So so it, it makes no sense. You know, I, I imagine most women are like, no, that's not what I would worry about <laughs> when I'm dating someone. I'm not like, I really hope he can lead me. You know what I mean? Um, and again, you go on the Internet, you'll see, a sh especially from, you know, MGTOW, incel, pick, pick up artist community, conservatives, uh, rhetoric around men are born to lead and they need to lead and women expect them. And certainly some women are looking for that. That's the sort of thing they're looking for. But, yeah. <laughs> but it, it's a, it, one, 
being a virgin doesn't mean you can't be dominant and a leader, right? Right. <laughs> um, two, uh, uh, many women really don't, you know, so let me, it's a, it's a, it's a simplistic way of looking at uh, heterosexual relationships. Let me give an example. In my marriage, when it comes to travel, me and Stacy, I lead. For whatever reason, we've just landed on that um, configuration, and she's fine with it, and I'm fine with it. Right. Um, but that's I, just because you're not a travel virgin. Yeah. Um, well, I am a virgin. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so the uh, so I lead in that. <clears throat> you know, I, I buy all the tickets. I make all the plans. Right. I uh, direct where we go. I you know say we're going to do this then and. And she's perfectly happy. You know, she'll chime in and I'll ask her for sure. Right. But she's she's more of just like a a mellow person where I'm, I'm much more kind of picky about what I want to do. When it comes to dog related things, our dog, uh, Obi-Wan Kenobi, <laughs> she leads. She uh, dictates the food, the the training program, the, his bed, right. he, uh, when he goes for a walk, the, the poop, the pee. When he scratches your face. <laughs> yeah. Um, she's in charge, you right. know, and, and um, I'm cool with that. When it comes to cat-related things, I lead. When it comes to podcast marketing, she leads. Right. Um, so uh, what does it mean to uh, say that uh, men have to lead, you know? Yeah. Certainly some configurations that can be true. Yeah. But in my experience, most heterosexual relationships, most all, all relationships for that matter, uh, there are uh, flexibility to yeah. what someone leads and what someone doesn't lead. And, and that is functional. And uh, I think women understand that. I, I wonder, like, I feel like this is getting to a related to slightly different thing because I, I really, I smell, I smell the, the Jordan Peterson uh, doctrine in here. And, and not just from him, but this idea of like, Hey man, traditional, traditional caveman goes, gets the hunt, comes back home with the blood on his face. And that's how you get the lady. And the lady needs to see that because she needs to see you can go and kill that bison or that, that saber tooth tiger. And if she doesn't see the blood on your face, she doesn't see you did it. You're not going to get the lady. Not only that, but you need to be able to, you got to be the silverback gorilla. And if you can't beat up the other guys, you're still also not going to get the lady. So like, you got to do that too. And, and, and then that was why you got to eat meat. Don't eat no fruits or veggies. You got to just eat meat. You got to absolutely be the leader in your household and at work and everywhere. The woman, I'm not saying she shouldn't work, but like, probably not. And she's, that's be, she's, it. she's better with kids. And yeah. Nursing. And then the woman absolutely should be a virgin until the man who's not a virgin and right. very experienced right. takes her. So empirically speaking, for some people, they prefer that lifestyle. Uh, for most people, they don't. Right. Uh, that's a that's a lifestyle. You know, there are some women. That's what they want. They want the guy who is hyper masculine, and and they want to stay home, and they want to be taken care of. And uh, there's some men who want to do that. And there's nothing wrong with that. Right. Um, you can be a feminist, uh, both the man and the woman in a relationship, and still live that lifestyle. Uh, you can. And there, so it's it's not a bad thing, but it's not the thing. And I think that's the problem is that there are those that believe like, yeah, it is the thing. And when you don't make it the thing, and by the way, man and woman, and uh, not only biologically, but psychologically identified as so, because if you don't do it that way, our society collapses and we all go to hell, literally. Well, Umberto, I'm so proud of you because I feel like rewind the clock six years, you would have been parroting some of those points of view. No, not those. But a shade of it. 
not the woman part stuff. Like, I don't think so. Not on this stuff, no. I seem to remember you saying some things along the line of men and women are different. And, yeah, I do believe that. And yeah. there are certain biological... I still believe all that. But it sounds different. Well, I certainly... I mean, I, yeah, I mean, I, I, I do believe and would probably still contend, but I don't have the evidence, that there are genetic factors that are not easy to overcome just from social factors. But I've also argued before that even the ones that are social factors, they've been passed down so repetitively, repetitively, repeatingly, that like they've, they almost mimic genetic factors. And that therefore, when you actually say, well, no, every woman in this class should do the same number of pull-ups and non-knee push-ups as every boy, that that's ridiculous. But that's not the same as saying, and therefore, every man needs to be the leader, and the woman needs to stay at home, and blah, blah, blah. Like, I've never made that chasm jump. Great. You also ask, anonymous patron, you wonder if women uh, will trust you because you're a virgin. You're like, uh, you know, can I be... Trust. Uh, am I untrust... Or will people not trust me because I'm a virgin? Berto, what do you think of that? <laughs> I don't see the connection. Like, like what? Like, wait, what? Oh, I mean, like, imagine you're about to, uh, like, hey, man, can you, uh, I'm going to be out of town for a bit. Can you come in, like, check in on my cat? Like, sure. But one question. Are you a virgin? No. (laughs) The question would be, uh, have you put a penis? (laughs) Yes. Have you put your own penis into a vagina? Can you scrape off some molly? I I need to do some lab analysis here. (laughs) It's like, well, I'm gay. Well, I can't. I don't know if I can trust trust you. you. Um, right. Um, or it's a woman who doesn't have a penis. Yeah. I don't know if I can trust you. Yeah. Uh, it's ridiculous. If, if someone now, is it possible that some women might not trust you because you're a virgin? Absolutely. There are a lot of stupid people in the world that believe in all sorts of stupid shit. And, and when you start dating, you fucking see that shit. So yeah, it's possible. And if they do fuck them, that's a good way to, you know, you should start with that. Like, by the way, I'm a virgin. If they're turned off by that, it's just like, well, there's that's probably the tip of the iceberg in terms of like all sorts of red flags there. In terms <laughs> no of, pun. Yeah, don't yeah. don't don't spend time with them. Um, uh, some people how, believe wait, that. How it, is that a pun? Well, because the tip of the iceberg. But oh, some I people you doing believe, red flag from, oh, from no, virgin. No. Some people believe that if you're a virgin, you live on a flat Earth. <laughs> yeah. Uh, plus, you know, honestly, it's none of their business. Yeah. When you first start dating someone, you don't have to talk about that at all. Right. Uh, and it's also kind of a weird thing to bring up. Yeah. Uh, get to know someone. Take your time, and if over time they prove that they're a likable person, that's worth it. Um, and they're trustworthy, feel free to tell them that you're a virgin at that point. Yeah. Um, you could even wait till after you have sex to tell them you're hey, a virgin. By the way, I was a virgin. <laughs> yeah, by the way, that, you know, three weeks ago, that was my first time. You know, it, it's not anyone's fucking business. Yeah. Or tell them right away. You know, yeah. it's, it's up to you. It's, uh, you also ask here, does virginity cause intimacy problems? Berto, what do you think? Well, I don't know about if virginity, like, here's what I do think. Um, people need to watch for it because I actually just was listening to on uh, something like this on NPR um, and I've seen research like this before. Uh, things like compulsively watching pornography uh, potentially, and I don't know if this is true for females, but potentially uh, if, if males um, sort of start associating certain kinds of pornography with the way they masturbate and how they pleasure themselves constantly it can actually lead to them having some difficulty just uh, stuff like asterisk, that. it absolutely can affect women why wouldn't it yeah I, and, I, and uh you know some women uh in the exact same way yeah. can have a hard time being aroused by in-person sex 
and might even have a hard time orgasming right. because of certain things that they do when they're right. masturbating in the exact same way that it can right. affect so them. It's and, more why, like, and why wouldn't it? Yeah. So it's more like, for me, the only thing I would say is, this is true whether you're a virgin or not, is the point, is that um, if you want to have successful intimacy with humans, you need to spend time trying to have successful intimacy with humans. Uh, be it uh, sex, be it talking to them, being whatever, not only staring at a screen and dealing with yourself by yourself. Yeah. So you ask, you know, does virginity cause intimacy problems? I don't really know what you mean by intimacy problems. Um, it's possible you mean erectile dysfunction. Uh, so I'll answer the question, you know, is being a virgin a risk factor for erectile dysfunction? Uh, possibly. But in my experience, the correlation is quite small. Um, I'm guessing the vast majority of people who wait until their 20s to have sex are well within the normal range of erectile dysfunction rates. Um, there are many different uh, there are many different risk factors or causes of um, arousal issues for all genders: um, anxiety, trauma, depression, medication, not being in a trusting relationship, and having sex for the first time, even if you've had sex a thousand times. Um, is potentially anxiety-provoking. For sure. most people, it is. I mean, you don't know the person. You might not know them very well, or you might be worried that you're going to perform badly or you're going to fart in the middle of sex or something. Sure. And, and that anxiety for all genders is going to interfere with arousal. And for people with penises, it might interfere with erectile dysfunction. But, you know, that's normal. That That's, that's all the time. The vast majority of people... Um, the sex at the, you know, the 50th time you have sex is better than the first 10 times <laughs> uh, with, with one particular person. Right. So this, uh, you know, this notion of just like, you know, am I going to have problems with sex uh, because I was a virgin? It's like, well, everyone has problems with sex yeah. when they first meet someone. Right. Uh, they, they don't talk about it. It's not something that men have beers over and go like... Oh, by the way, I bagged a babe, and boy, was it fucking awkward. Yeah. I was terrified. I, I only got it. I only got it up like for three minutes. It went down, and yeah. you know, it took me a while to kind of get back up. I thought I was ready to go, then I wasn't. You know, and yeah. and, uh, and you know, she was cool about it, but I could kind of tell that she, you know, right. and it's that's not what people talk about. You Is know, that your bar voice? By yeah. the way? I love it. <laughs> it's a little, little bit of a southern thing in there. <laughs> yeah. The the other thing here, you know, you say intimacy, intimacy problems. It's also possible that you mean bad at sex. You know, just like. You know, does virginity cause being bad at sex, like yeah. intimacy problems? Um, yeah, same, you know, uh, sure. Uh, the first few times might be awkward, but it's it's awkward for everyone. Yeah, I, I think that's the key is that, of course, if you've never actually done anything in life, something, whatever you pick, the first few times, you're not going to be as good as you get as right. you practice. That's just yeah. a true thing the, in general. There, there, there's this notion on virginity that uh, I think is hidden in your language anonymous patron that has been downloaded to you from propaganda that men and their penises are when they're having sex with someone they're sort of on the grand stage mm -hmm. it's not just on a stage in front of one person you're sort of like on your masculinity is on display oh. for the person and everyone they know you're performing for the world and and, and maybe even practically for everyone that they're going to gossip to after oh. after the date and so um you have to uh be the perfect you know adonis i see 
uh, with the perfect penis and the perfect arousal and the perfect way and the you know everything's got to look right and yeah. and th- that is that notion is one silly and two completely counter to arousal right um and also completely counter to what your partner wants what your partner right. wants is for you so so what i i've i've actually talked with a lot of young people about this and you know young in their 20s and there's there's just a few keys to having good sex and the internet doesn't talk about or at least the internet doesn't imply this the main thing you you want to do meth meth absolutely you know rock hard <laughs> um the main thing you want to do is you want to pay attention to just two things um one is what you want and how you're feeling mm-hmm. and the other one is what the other person wants and how they're feeling crazy that's all, uh, yeah it's mind-blowing <laughs> okay. uh don't worry about performing well or what someone's going to say about you right. after or um how you're comparing to past partners right. or uh, you know, if you're gonna, if your boner is gonna last, uh, what? How are you feeling? Yeah. What and what do you want out of that encounter? And how is the other person feeling? And what are you intuiting they want? And bet, better yet, ask them what do they yeah. want. What do you like to do? <laughs> um, that is that is good sex. Yeah. And if that involves occasional, uh, you know, droopy dick issues then that, that is that is fine you know because uh, in that moment that's what your body's doing yeah and if you're nice and kind and you you know pick a good partner uh she's gonna be like totally fine with Slap it. that droopy dick on my elbow <laughs> love it that's what i want you yeah. know uh so uh and in all likelihood if you do that um there will be you know only occasional droopy dick issues and i will say be careful because droopy dick on elbow can be painful elbows are surprisingly hard (laughs) (laughs) uh and also lastly people stop relying on the internet to give you information about things about culture and about health because it's fucking bullshit you know especially uh youtube and these kinds of places don't listen to people talking randomly on some podcast or youtube channel letting telling you what to do along those lines (laughs) let's take a break when we get back uh, let's actually, you know what? Let's make the rest of this episode just for patrons only. Oh, so we're going to answer more patron emails, but only for patrons. So if you want to hear the rest of this episode, you have to become a patron of the podcast. It's the good old droop and switch. <laughs> so go to patreon.com, become a patron of this podcast to get access to the rest of this episode and hundreds of other episodes that are our best episodes, deep dives on personality disorders and right. other kinds of things that uh, I believe are really high-quality educational products. And so um, go to patreon.com, become a patron, do it now. Because you have to do it. And and if you don't do it, I'm going to personally come and um, give you a tour, a guided tour, through all the reasons why you're a bad person you should be shamed. (laughs) So let's say someone who is a, a propagandist of... Uh, shame of virginity and they were trying to have their listeners become a patron of their podcast what would they sound like do you come home after a full day of picking berries with berry juice on your chest and your woman looks at you in disdain and disgust because you didn't catch that meat yeah well that's what you get when you don't donate to our podcast man become a patron catch that meat (laughs) do it (laughs) 
I mean, I've never heard of hunter-gatherer shame, but you just did it. All right. Welcome to the Patron Zone, people. Love you so much. Another uh, email here. That people want us to talk about the documentary Don't Fuck With Cats. Have you seen it? Oh, I've heard of it. I haven't seen it. You gotta watch it. I kind of don't don't want to watch it. Is it going to be well, don't, disturbing? Yes. The, the, particularly the first <sighs> episode. There's only like three or four episodes. Yeah. It goes by pretty quick. I blazed through that because okay. it, it's like the, the story evolves oh. and you're like, oh my God. Um. But there's a couple images that yeah. I had to watch through the cracks of my head. Yeah, yeah. Where I was like, oh, I see where this is going. And you can predict it. It yeah. doesn't, it's like you know where it's headed. And I actually don't recommend um, watching it for anyone. I mean, um, to be fair, this morning I saw my cat, like, and I, I, I felt conflicted, but I saw him, like, stalk, stomp on, and eat a spider. Which, which is, is actually cruel. Yeah, which if you, you're actually such a vegan that you would have taken the spider and put it outside. Yeah. You, you don't even cook. What about like. No, flies and mosquitoes, I draw the line at. Oh. Flies, mosquitoes, and moths. And the reason is because they're predate, predate, predators of my stuff, right? Like one of them sucking my blood, the other one's pooping everywhere and sucking my, or, you know, whatever. And then the, uh, the uh, moths are eating all my clothes. So those three, I like draw the line at. Mm. But spiders, I like. Yeah. Right. Like they're not biting me. They usually don't. So, uh, highly recommend "Don't Fuck with Cats." It's very interesting, and it also is a modern story of a Ted Bundy kind of a thing. Mm. It's like only in today's time can we have this sort of psychopathic sadist. Yeah. Um, and it, it, and it's, it's. It's just a fascinating story. And it's very relatable, too, yeah. because the people they interview are just people like us that um, saw something on the Internet right. and, and had a reaction to it. And then right. it, they go on this epic journey together. And um, so very... Uh, I'm going to have to watch it. Yeah. Um, and for the record, because people are asking me to talk about it, I don't know, you know, even if I did a spoil episode, I don't know what I would say other than to say that this is a... A very good example of a sadistic psychopath who um, has a, a extremely harmful compulsion. And um, so if you want a good example of that sort of personality, this is a, yeah. a very good example of, of that sort of person. And when we start throwing around the word, you know, these words like psychopath and, and sadist and this kind of thing or narcissist, we have to remember that. There are real sadistic psychopaths yeah. out there that are not like your ex-boyfriend who yeah, bro yeah. broke up with you over texting. You know, right. that, that's not a sadistic psychopath. Uh, famous patron Lyndon wrote in a number of questions. Do you and Berto have any current movie peeves? Movie peeves? And he, and he, <laughs> and he, provides, he provides, he has some. He says, I have some. Like the way all action movies now look like a vague take on the Bourne movies, <laughs> which I loved, he said. Um, that stupid non-gravity effect where people jump up while climbing or get picked up and thrown into walls or windows in a way that gravity makes impossible. 
the tinkling piano on the trailers and the quiet, loud, quiet, loud formula of trailers, <laughs> um, contrived arguments that are supposed to be charming, Avengers, Star Wars, etc., where the underlying reasons for the heated debate are not established enough to make real. Berto, what do you think? Uh, I mean, A, of course. I mean, we have, we have nothing if not peeves about... But B, wow, that's a good list because that's a lot of my peeves. For example, yeah, so... A lot of my peeves have to do with previews, which I hate watching in general, but sometimes it's unavoidable. Um, they'll use the same musical themes or songs in so many previews, and it, it's always really pissed me off. Blah. For example, ever since like you, you know Nolan did a few of those, then all of a sudden all these like movies like that have that, Dawn, right? But then in like absolutely scary movies, are you gonna be our new daddy? Ding, ding, ding. You know, little little chimes or piano. Oh, this is scary. Or in a Christmas movie, they always use the Nutcracker, right? They always use like, or uh, in a in an indie movie where a person goes through some life transformation, they always use some ver- like a spoon song or some version of like tan 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 tan. You know what I mean? Electric Light Mr. Orchestra, Mr. Like, Blue Sky, Mr. Blue Sky. They they use a song like that. There's something about that kind of driving beat that makes us think that we're changing. And uh, yeah, these drive me nuts the other one that really drives me nuts is uh they kind of alluded fpl kind of alluded to it um but in in my case it's you are doing exposition like you're giving us backstory but in the most like awkward dialogue way possible it's like oh yeah well it's it's not just because i'm your sister that i stole those dollars from your wallet three years ago you know like stupid stuff like that we're like okay so you stole three dollars from him three years ago we're supposed to know that got it or like how they announce certain things that they would know so they wouldn't be re-announcing them like well our uncle armando was blah 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 you know like like yeah we know what our uncle's name is right along those lines <laughs> In the beginning of a movie or a TV series, they will refer to each other by each other's roles. Like, they'll be like, well, husband, or, well, you know, as my older brother. Right. And on some <laughs> level, you can do that in a way that feels natural or at least isn't alarming. But there's a, but there's a line. Oh, there's where definitely you, a line. Yeah. <laughs> the, the, uh, akin to that is when people call each other by their first names. Right. Um, I have never and know nobody who uses their name you know in fact you've probably said the word kirk to in my presence Uh like six times in my life (laughs) my wife stacy when i hear her say my name it's a it's alarming it's a problem yeah uh, I'm at the mall and she can't find me or something yeah like in fact sometimes i'll be like can you just say my name? Because it's actually kind of fun for me to hear you. <laughs> but in movies and TV, like right. the classic example is Titanic. Oh, um, there's actually a um, a mashup or an edit or something uh-huh. where um, you know it's Rose and Jack, and it's they say each other's names like uh, some ungodly amount of times, some like 175 times. Oh my god, Rose, Jack, Rose, Rose, Rose. Well, which Rose Jack. are you talking to right now? Right. No one does that. You like. When Umberto, you came over to my house yeah. today to record, you didn't go like, Kirk, how are you doing? Hi, Kirk. Yeah, you just said, how you doing? Because I know you're talking to me since you're looking at me, and the only other person in the room is the dog and the cat, and so... Hi, you know, Kirk, my fellow podcaster, whom I met at that karaoke night yeah. so many years ago. Yeah, I, it just <laughs> drives me nuts, and I, 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 
I don't understand the compulsion of the script writers. I sort of get it in the beginning of a of a screenplay, like to remind people of people's names, I guess, or their sure. roles. But by minute ninety, I don't need this convention, you know, of of people just yeah. using this name, and it, it's like it's like you know, great grading. Yeah, like right? the, I mean, can you yeah. think of people, anyone in your life, who? Like calls you Umberto in your face, not like in this recurring fashion. No, yeah, like I, no, and and I think the rule of thumb should be, like, strip away all of it, and then only add back in the absolute necessary to unconfuse the reader or listener. Exactly, or whatever, especially know? in a visual medium where yeah. we can see the person looking at the person. Yeah, yeah. In a book, you might have to sprinkle in the name, but you could also just say at, they're addressing you know so and so as anyway. Another um, big pet peeve that has only developed in the past four years, five years, and when I tell you this, people, you will not be able to stop hearing it, and I apologize, (laughs) is all um, previews now, or not all, but about half, and a lot of movies and TV shows have what I call slow covers, where they do a cover of a song uh-huh. that we all, and it's usually an '80s song. Oh, sure. But it's this, it's what I consider to be. It's they they get someone, they get an artist, sort of like Lord, yeah. you know, with that sort of yeah. dark, sparse, right. uh, slow. All around me are familiar faces. Exactly. That could be the first example. That yeah. goes back to the '90s. Yeah. But uh, now I hear that all the time, yeah. especially in previews. And I, th- I think what they're trying to do is they're, one, they're trying to tap into the, uh, our generation yeah. because we're, we're, well, I know that song. Yeah. We spend a lot of money at the movies, you right. know, people in their forties, they're going to the movies a lot, you know? Yeah. And so, especially if the movie is sort of geared towards that right. age group. And so one, they're trying to appeal to that familiarity. Um, but they don't want to play the song because right. it seems like it's not an eighties it's not an eighties uh, period piece. Right. And so uh, they also want to give it some mood. And so they, they, and it takes a while. And what for most people, you know, like my wife, for example, she doesn't really notice, right? She, she's just watching the preview and it's just sort of washing over. She's not really evaluating it. I'm evaluating it. And, I'm, and, and I also, I'm such, I'm so attuned and I'm sure you are too to music that I yeah. can't help but to notice Two previews ago, you know, I'm, I'm watching the trailers <laughs> yeah. before a movie. They did the exact same sure, convention, yeah. and then and then I'm like, okay, well, that was two out of three. Yeah, and then now I'm watching, and I'm like, a th- literally a third of previews have this convention. Yeah, it's true. It's true, and it's, it's not abrasive, other than the fact that you know that the director and the you know the producer of the trailer had to have known. Yeah. That other people were doing it and just copied it. Yeah, and it's just uncreative. It's right. like that's what bugs me about it the most. It's like of anyone who uh, knows that they're just copying a bunch of other people, it should be the people that did it because they obvious because they obviously pay attention to that. So it's like with the boing, boing, right. you know, sound designers probably are, you know slamming their head against the wall going like please director do not ask me to do the blah blah like I can do so many other things There's, I'm so much I have a creative mind right um, but they don't because uh, they just don't have creativity <laughs> like what movie did I watch oh have you seen un- uncut, uncut Gems oh no but I want to the Adam Sandler it's so good yeah yeah it's frantic 
want to see it. The preview looked great. <laughs> Stacy didn't like it, which I could see because it's 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 a very particular style. It's okay. uh, everyone talks over each other. There's not really a distinct a distinct script. In fact, mm. there's whole conversations where you can't even really. He- but you get the vibe of what's happening. It's very chaotic. Sure, it's a very effective, chaotic, ever moving forward script, and the music is very unique. It's mm. it's like a it's a risk that they took. You know, they could have easily gone down the middle mainstream with certain kind of tension building music. You know, the reminds me. You're describing it. Reminds me a little of the movie Eighth Grade. Um, no, because it had very specific music. You know. Oh, right. Yeah. Right. So it has that kind of quality where yeah. it it goes back to melody, which yeah. I'm always, which is another pet peeve of mine with because I'm old probably <laughs> is that. At a certain point, and I've talked about this before, I call it the nine inch nails of vacation <laughs> of soundtracks, which is right. There's no, there's no tone. There's no melody, you know, with Superman dun, dun, or wait, right. is that, is that, um, uh, uh, Star Wars? Anyway, there, there were melodies. So now I don't obviously want soundtracks to be like Superman, but you know, they would have slow versions yeah. for, for dramas, you know. But after Nine Inch Nails, it was all just kind of like, you know, even yeah. like um, Modern Family, the TV show, mm-hmm. the theme music to it is, you know, like Cheers, you have, and everybody, everybody go, everybody knows your name. Yeah, yeah. Now, Modern Family, try to sing that song. Oh, I don't know it. Well, you've heard it a billion times, and it is um, it's it's fun, but there's no real distinct melody to Ooh. it, you know. Anyway, yeah. So that's another pet peeve. Another pet peeve of mine is wet streets. I've talked about this in the podcast before. All right, most they look better on <laughs> most TV and movies are filmed in where California, LA, LA specifically, dry, dry, dry town. It is dry, and. Also, most people who make movies live in L.A., whom don't really even understand how rain works. (laughs) And so uh, being a Seattleite, I understand how rain works, which is it comes from the sky, which means it covers literally everything. And so if you have wet streets but dry cars, that doesn't make any sense. If you have wet streets and dry sidewalks. It might have been a flood or something. you know. Well, it was a flood. A truck came by. The other thing is I consider it extremely wasteful. For something that isn't actually that appealing, the reason why they do it is because they learn in film school that a wet street films much better it's, than a dry it street. Glistens, right? Yeah, you got all these reflections. It, uh, I, it doesn't. It, it, it. I have. I'm so attuned to this now that I now notice when they don't wet the streets down, uh-huh. and I guarantee you, it doesn't diminish the scene. Right. Uh, now there are some scenes where you kind of need it, like if you're going for. Like the movie Us, for example, mm-hmm. with uh, Jordan Peele's movie. Mm-hmm. You're going for kind of a surreal, um, you know, kind of vibe. Sure. You might want to wet the streets to give it a mood, but they will do it literally on commercials where someone's just driving down the street <laughs> or uh, a drama about, you know, a procedural or something. It's yeah. just like you're not you're, – you're, you're, you're just going with like, well, that's what you do. You wet the streets when yeah. you shoot. and. And it drives me crazy, and I and I drive Stacy crazy because 
I just say wet streets, wet street strike. <laughs> I say wet street strike cars, wet street strike cars. The one that used to drive me crazy, and I understand they didn't really have much capability to do it else uh, otherwise. Back in the old days, night scenes in you know like the old movies where it was obviously a day right. daytime. And um, as a kid, I was always like, "Wow, that moon looks." really weird yeah (laughs) yeah that what they would do is they would put a filter sometimes literally on the camera lens that would make the bright sunlit sky look a shade of blue yeah but yeah it was obvious that it wasn't uh but that was a limitation on right and that's why it's technology like like, their fault and they they have to have night scenes right they they didn't have uh low light cameras or cheap ones uh, another, uh, so you talk about famous patron Lyndon, Lyndon, you talk about the Bourne movies. Yeah. Um, I love the Bourne identity when it first came out. I, I remember thinking it was, it was, I remember actually going, whoa, this is kind of a leap forward, like, yeah. ma- like the matrix or something. Uh, the elements about it were travel was mm-hmm. actually, I remember thinking like, cause you know, the, it goes to seven or eight different yeah. major cities and they weren't just filming in Los Angeles and making right. it look like it was Berlin. They were right, actually right. in Berlin. And I remember thinking like, wow, that's kind of interesting. And like, obviously, a lot of movies have copied that, you yeah. know, the the new Bond movies, for example. Well, I mean, I think I think it's a concept that did come from Bond in a way, right? Because like Bond, but, one of the appeals was like, where's all the places he's going to go to? But, Whether or not they were filming there. but you know. Right. That was the other thing. Yeah. It was like it wasn't distinctive. Uh, and it wasn't necessarily urban, you know, like yeah. the new Bond movies are are more urban. Sure. The, the old Bond movies, they would be in Switzerland, but they'd be in the countryside or something. Yeah. Anyway, so the travel aspect and but also the frantic action and the, the edits, you know, the very quick edits and the, right. the way that the the, you know, physical fights. Yeah, and the were fighting, filmed. right. I remember being like, wow, they do not age well, though. When I watched The Born Identity and really, in particular, really? the the sequels. Well, I didn't like the sequels, but well, I didn't like them anywhere near as much. But the originals should there, still be. Pretty- there are some scenes in the original yeah. that I really like, like um, the relationship between him and, yeah. that, and the woman from uh, Run, Lola, Run. Yeah. Um, I find to be, you know, unique and kind of interesting and real gritty. You know, when they get in that shitty, when he gets in her shitty car, yeah, and yeah. he has to evade. You know, it just feels so much more down to earth, you yeah. know, sort of like the every man's bond in a sense. But the the annoying, the camera uh, oh, stuff. Okay. So Business Insider did an analysis on the Bourne movies. And there's a thing called a- average sh- shot length, meaning that, you know, for every shot, mm-hmm. for every cut, how much time spans between yeah. the beginning of the shot and the end of the shot. Um, in Born Identity, the first one, the average shot, le- just take a guess, what do you think it was? So this is average over the entire movie. Okay, uh, average shot length, one minute. Four seconds. No way! Average? Oh my God. Right. Uh, so that means that, you know, you probably have like a, like a 10 second or 15 second oh shot and, and like less than a, okay. Like second, the second, next second. movie born supremacy. What do you think it was? Um, I, it was then lower because it started annoying me more. So like three seconds, 2.4. Oh my God. The next one. What do you think it was? Even worse. I don't know. A second, two, <laughs> two seconds. The th- so That's ridiculous. The third one, the average shot length Ugh. was two seconds. Wait, what's the third one called? Born Revenge or something. I think that I didn't even see I don't know if I saw the third one, but I know that in the second one, 
I got really frustrated, and it probably was because of that, but also the shakiness got too much. Like, too yeah. much shaky cam. Right. Essentially, what you're doing is you're masking the fact that your actor isn't a action star. And you're, uh, like, if you just really analyze, like, Jackie Chan is known for wide shots right. with very little cutting. Because right. he's an, he's a legit action star. And he choreographs these very interesting fights yeah. that um, don't need you to cut very much to make it interesting. Uh, the movie with Charlize Theron that came out a few years ago where she is a um, like an action hero, a white, mm. blonde, oh, yeah. platinum blonde platinum or blonde. something like that. Another movie that travels the world. And there that was directed by, I think, the guy who did John Wick. Okay. Um, and John Wick, for example, yeah. is another one. They uh, purposely, you know, say, okay, this is going to be a 20-second sequence that we're going to train Charlize Theron or, mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, Keanu Reeves to do. And it's going to take him maybe like a week just to learn this 20 sure. seconds. But he, they're going to film it but straight. They, but they're going to film it straight, you yeah. know, and all these stunt guys. And, and it might take three days to film these 20 yeah. seconds, but we're going to do it because... It feels so much more real than yeah. than when you have these you know half second cuts. Uh, the other thing that I I didn't like about the Bourne movies is that um, it eventually got to in the trilogy was that they basically make the secret agent invincible. He's basically a god. Uh, he can do anything. Mm-hmm. He he he's smarter. He's invisible at times. You know, it's <clears> like <throat> the classic where. Um, uh, you know, they're on the phone with each other. And then, and this was actually in one of the Bourne movies. And you're like, you know, Hey, where are you? I, I need you to come in. You're just like, well, I'm a rogue agent now. And you're not, you know, you got to believe me. It wasn't my fault. You, well, you got to come in and you got to prove yourself. Well, I, I'm not going to do that. By the way, I like your new blouse. <gasps> what? He, wait, and then, you know, the, the agent turns around and wait, the, you know, Jason Bourne is, where is he? He's here. He's across he, the street. He's across the street. But he's gone, you know, yeah. and they never catch him. Yeah. You know, just once I'd be, you know, I'd like you, the guy be, by the way, nice blouse. The woman turns around. Oh, by the way, uh, call the cops, surround the block, and we'll do a systematic search, yeah. and we'll eventually oh, get him. Oh, we got him. We got him. Because he doesn't have wings. We got him. You know oh, what I mean? that's too bad. We yeah, it's him. like, oh, I guess <laughs> I shouldn't have revealed the fact that I was across the goddamn yeah. street. Um, you know, that kind of... I, and that's first, in the second one, I think. Oh, is it? Yeah. Now, I get it. You know, people like invincible heroes i don't well to a certain extent but not like that like for example i never liked in bond movies or in general but this happened in in the the bond movies i like better are the ones where he relies less on just dumb luck because there's some scenes where you're like how are you gonna get out of it oh well you just got really freaking lucky right there and that's always less interesting to me it's like but but i like the ones where it's more like oh that's clever oh that's a clever way to like commit you know um but but I do think that there's a little bit of that appeal. Like, yeah, we want someone who's smarter than the average bear, faster and stuff like that, but not perfect. Right. The first Iron Man movie, there were times when I legitimately thought, is Tony Stark going to make it? Yeah. Uh, later Iron Man movies, and particularly <laughs> the, the Avengers movies, yeah. there I never once worried right, that right. Tony Stark was going to yeah. eat it. Because the suit is perfect. The suit does everything. Yeah. Um, so that brings me to another uh, pet peeve of mine. Oh, yeah. So you talk, <laughs> FPL, about the non-gravity and the jump up thing. Yeah, that drives me up. Also, 
total lack of knowledge of physics, either by the producers or the audience. Both, um, really. Yeah, yeah. Lois Lane falls from a skyscraper. <laughs> Superman swoops in to save her. Right. And catches her, uh, you know, after she falls like 70 stories or something. Um, she she will be mush. She will she will just blend right through his arms. You know, it'd be like landing on two two iron beams. Right. Just because it's a man doesn't yeah. you know he's he's a man of steel. Right. Um, if he catches her without actually slowing down slowing with down her. with yeah. her. Uh, he will he will kill her. Yeah, uh, and this happens especially all- when they when they swoop sideways. You yeah. know, like how many movies persons fall and then the ship comes from the side or whatever and swoops them sideways. Yeah, so now you're getting a <laughs> double momentum change, and all your uh, organs will will come out of your ears. Yeah, um, the, the, and uh, related to that Iron Man going from like Mach five. <laughs> to, to landing in a three point stance on the ground, he, he as I always say, all of his ooze and body will just slowly ooze out, you know, the pores <laughs> of the bottom of of the feet because the iron suit will apparently withstand that <laughs> sure. kind of stress. But the body behind, you know, if I take a a the most impenetrable substance known to man, like a, a, a an iron board, yeah. an iron sheet. And I put it flat against your face. And then I take a mallet <laughs> or a car and I run in to yes. that, to that. And you're just holding that iron sheet up against your head. All that energy is going to go straight into the iron. And guess what? Straight into your fucking head. Oh, yeah. But you're forgetting a detail. I have space age foam, a space age foam layer that absorbs infinite amounts of momentum. Yeah, that doesn't exist. And even if it did... But I've invented it. Yeah, but this is not possible. (laughs) Unless you had some sort of stasis field that literally permeated every molecule in your body to withstand that momentum change, which, of course, is stupid. And, And again... Well, not again. Well, maybe again. I might have said this in a previous podcast. There's a way to make the movie fit physics and still be interesting. You don't have to break physics to make an interesting movie. Well, you could stretch it, but I think your point is that it's stretched beyond recognition. Yeah. Because certainly every every superhero or sci-fi movie or whatever, it's going to be a bit of like, okay, well, that's not quite right. But the point is when it's, it is so egregious that you actually start not caring, like you were saying, right. like there's nothing, nothing can get this yeah, guy. Especially when it has to do with making our hero invincible. That yeah. That's, that's very bothersome. Uh, related to this is like, you know, you shoot someone with a gun and they go flying. Right. Um, that's just not how guns work. <laughs> you shoot someone, the, the bullet goes straight through and, and you, You'll barely, you know, they've done experiments on, I think, Mythbusters with this. And, you know, they shoot slabs of beef and even high caliber, caliber yeah. weapon, even shotguns. You, you will barely see the, 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 right. the body move at all. Well, because the, the presumption there would be that the strands of fiber, fi- fibrous tissue are so strong that they're able to keep up with the bullet without breaking such that the rest of the body could be dragged along some amount of distance. Right. Whereas in reality, no, it just cuts through like butter. Right. That's <laughs> the whole point of a bullet. It's it's pointed so that it's like the edge of a knife. Right. Like it's imagine imagine the the equivalent literally would be like if you have a stick of butter and you have a hot knife and you go slice and the butter goes flying off like I just <laughs> hit the microphone. <laughs> <laughs> Um, also Adam Carolla often talks about this thing that, that I've started to notice since he pointed out is like the, 
the universal. Well, what do you think that of of all the traits of every hero from uh, you know Tony Stark to Batman to uh, even Die Hard guy, what's his name? Oh, uh, Bruce Willis is playing McLean. McCain. John, John, John McLean. He's in my song. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. There's a universal uh, skill that they have that that really no one else has. What do you think it is? Universal skill that no one else has. All these heroes. Well, first of all, they can they can uh, go forward with any amount of pain and injury. Like that's. Yeah. You well, know. but, you know, we see John McClane in pain because of his feet. Yeah, I guess so. That's true. So what else do you think? Um, it's it's Once you hear it, you'll be like, yeah. But it's one of those things where it's not noticeable because... It's like perfect timing, I guess. Like, Yeah. What it is, is the ability to grab onto services. Oh, interesting. <laughs> so people are falling yeah, yeah. often in these sorts of movies, and they, with their fingers, they're able to stop themselves. Right, right. They grab onto a pipe or an edge or, or anything. The, yeah. the ability of these people to grab and hold and hold on right. and even save themselves, because it's just a classic action movie thing where the hero is hanging for his life off of this right. thing. And they almost never actually fall, right? Yeah, that's true. And even by one like little finger, you're like, oh, yeah, because it's because the, the fingers start going, poop, yeah, poop, yeah, poop, and then you're down to your finger. Right. Oh, pull me up! But sometimes they fall from great heights uh-huh. to that ledge, and they manage to hold and on. They hold on, and then as they're falling from that ledge, a hand comes out of nowhere and grabs their wrist, and they're yeah. safe. Right. It, it, Which, by the way, have you tried pulling someone up by one? Have you tried with to, a sweaty wrist? Have you tried to <laughs> jump down fifty feet and grab onto a ledge and survive? Like your fingers don't don't withstand that amount of pressure. Um, the other thing I don't like is godlike superheroes. Um, you know, Thor, Superman, and now Wonder Woman, and now even Aquaman. I grew up with an Aquaman who was just a modest, a, who was just a dude who could speak to animals and yeah. swim underwater. And, and it was stronger than uh, human because of all his swimming. He was stronger, but that wasn't emphasized. You know, he he, he, he had was a very a lot stronger. he had a very on the cartoon on the comics on the cart. I'm talking about the cartoon. Sure, um, the cartoon on which was sure. very enjoyable. And the main thing is he could communicate with the fish. That's yeah. true, and that's a mass yeah. massive power. Like yeah. you, you can unless it, everyone else is on land. <laughs> they did a lot of stuff with that. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> Have you seen all the jokes where it's like? Oh, where are we going today, Superman? Well, it's in the downtown Paris, but I I don't know if we could bring you along. We could bring like a tank or something. Well, or... they kind of do that in uh, the boys, right? <laughs> oh yeah, because he's with, also the with, the water guy with the deep, you know. <laughs> yeah. Um. So uh, apparently, Aquaman now in the movies, and I, I I'm sure in the comics, the ability creep has gotten to the point where Aquaman is essentially just a version of Superman, who, but he can't fly. Yeah. He's impervious to bullets, right. right? He's as strong as Superman, as it looks like, or at least He's very strong. Close. Not as strong, but he's very strong. Um, he, uh, you know, has perfect timing and all that kind of... And is, you know, it, it just... It doesn't make it interesting to me. Wonder Woman, for example, I grew up with a Wonder Woman who actually could get shot. And the reason why she didn't get shot is because she had these reflective brace, bracelets. Yeah. And she was so fast and skillful that she could <laughs> deflect the bullets with with her with her arms, and that was pretty cool. 
And it also made me kind of worry, like, you know, if someone gets the jump on her, they could actually shoot her. Yeah. Wonder Woman now, according to the comics and according to the movies, she's not, why is she deflecting bullets? She can't be shot, right? She deflects the bullets, but she doesn't need to because she can't be hurt by bullets, right? I think so, yeah. It's kinda... and, and when she's fighting with someone with a sword, well, certainly a sword can't hurt her if bullets can't hurt her. So why is she even deflecting anything? But I think if the sword's made out of silver, She, because uh, she's a werewolf, she turns back into a vampire. So it just then... breaks everything, you know? It, you know, it, it ruins actually... the entire <clears throat> premise of the movie yeah. where I, I'm no, I, I'm like... Oh, so she's she's basically like an impervious, like physical object. So I will never worry about her ever. But there is, I do believe there is a good uh, a good way to to handle such characters. Uh, like the first Superman movie with Christopher Reeves kind of did this, yeah. Where the challenges aren't so much about like what how how big of a bar he can bend or something it's about saving the the very vulnerable friends that he has yeah and making choices and you and, know and saving just general humans that's and right. i grew up cuz that was the whole premise of almost yeah. all the superhero stuff in the past batman was on spider-man yeah. they rarely fought um the Gods. the super <laughs> bad guys yeah um and if they did it had to do with them saving the town right uh, Batman, you know, uh, the the Joker is going to blow up a boat yeah. and the Batman has to save that. Um, for whatever reason, because I think audiences and writers want to make it more epic. Right. They end up, uh, they almost never do that or they'll play lip service to it in the intro. Uh, but they quickly have to get to a storyline where... It it often you know even gets into like mysticism and shit yeah, you yeah. know like with Endgame or <laughs> all the magic stuff yeah you yeah. got like the red face guy who's on some soul planet Stole Red Skull. and yeah. and you know like I I went along with it but when I thought about it later I was like so the universe has magic and then I actually watched a YouTube video that <laughs> summarized the comic book yeah. epic nature of you know, the Avengers story as it's evolved and there's like. <laughs> Basically, it's 99% magic stuff. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah, definitely. There's and, and, all the celestials and all the uh, gods and, and entities of chaos and order and the watchers. And it's like, it's beyond beyond. Yeah. The beyonder. It's, it's like a religion. It's yeah. like devils and angels. Yeah. And, and, but makes less sense in some ways. And I, I just find that to just not be very interesting storytelling. You know, like Game of Thrones was best for me on the normal intrigue that could have happened in our world. Uh, The normal battles between normal uh, human beings, the, the little finger working behind the scenes. It was less interesting when there were white walkers and dragons. Sure. Well, I could see that. And and spells. But again, I think some like, okay, so the Sandman series uh, has all that, all the universal entities and things, but most of the storylines revolve around, how people's dreams and and I guess beings' dreams uh, are related to their to their lives and what what goes wrong with that and what goes right and all these kinds of things. Um, so it's kept at a very manageable level. You know, uh, it only gets <clears throat> it only gets big, big, and every and every now and then and in, in very specific ways. So I I think I do agree with you, but I think there's ways to incorporate a mythology. And yet, well, actually, Greek myths are still enjoyable. 
because you know to some extent because well because they <clears> mostly <throat> focus on, on the, the human humans yeah. or the or the children of gods who right. have very limited powers like, right like, like that's like, like Perseus right like if if the if the movie was just about like Zeus battling Hera that's never and been the whole interesting movie, it's like yeah. well I'm sending lightning that oh here's another pet peeve of mine. The, the, when they establish rules within the same movie or within the, the canon of movies, and then they just don't care about the rules. For example, early in the movie, you see that um, the, they shoot the bad guy with a shotgun and like nothing happens. But towards the end of the movie, when you need the bad guy to be defeated, just because they shot him with a little more emphasis, like now the shotgun does some damage to it. Yeah. This happens with like aliens, you know, like where, yeah. where at the beginning of the movie, uh, uh, Alien 1. The alien is kind of indestructible, you know, like they finally managed to wrestle him out of the of the spaceship, right? Aliens two aliens, the 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 James Cameron one, there's like thousands of these creatures and they're just like shooting them and it's a shooting gallery and they're able to take them on. Yeah. And that 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 kind of like non linear uh, like power level, it always drives me nuts. Yeah, <laughs> especially if you're really into the product. You know, if right. you're not really into the franchise of Alien, right. you might not notice because you don't really remember. Right. But if you're a big fan, it's a big bummer when the yeah. writers don't at least explain why things are changing right. in that world. Um, the main thing, famous patron Lyndon, pet peeve of mine, and this goes back to the beginning of storytelling is bad scripts. Yeah. Now I know enough. I'm a bit of a hobbyist pay attentioner to production of these kinds of things. I, um, I actually even made a small film back in the day uh, to kind of learn how to do sound production and video production. Mm -hmm. and, and the one thing, so I'll tell you, so this is a good example. So I got a video camera in like a good mini disc or mini tape, mini DV uh, tape. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, it was when video cameras kind of, tape video cameras kind of came into their own and they, you know, had good uh, picture and you could fit a lot of tape. Anyway, and computers got to a point where you could edit on your computer. Right. Um, so this is like 2002-ish or something, I think. And so I got this video camera and when I was a kid, I had a video camera. It was a giant one and I would right. make these little productions, <laughs> these like comedy the productions. Beta, the VHS ones. Yeah. yeah. And me and my friends would do comedy skits and stuff. And you might have seen some I've of seen those. A couple, yeah. yeah. And so I get this video camera in 2002 from a relative, actually. He gave me his old one. And I uh, did a lot of things with it. And one of the things I wanted to do was like, well, what if I tried to make a, like an actual short film? Yeah. And so it was just me all by myself. I didn't have any help. And so I was going to do the, I was going to do the acting. I was going to do the videoing. I was going to do the editing. I was going to do the sound design, um, you know, all that stuff. Yeah. Um, the after effects and, you know, and it was at a time when that was all just starting to be able to be done at home. And the one thing that I didn't do is write a script uh, because I was trying to write, I, I wanted to test my technical skill. And I also wanted mood pieces, you know, and I actually made it about it was sort of like a thing that um, like was inside the head of various different people that bumped into each other. And so there was a lot of voiceover. Oh, OK. And there were uh, there was like a rape scene and someone had like oh, post-traumatic stress disorder after yeah. that. And then someone was suicidal and. Yeah. Um, a friend of mine actually had a gun, like a like an actual gun that I used in a fake suicide 
contemplation scene and Yikes. but the so heavy material yeah <laughs> so when i finished it i was really happy that i succeeded in making something that looked like a short film yeah but pretty quickly i realized this is terrible because <laughs> i never i never sat down to write a story <laughs> and i'm actually not a story <laughs> writer so I, you were just stringing along the ideas into a thing yeah different yeah. scenes that kind of fit together and but um but the but there was no arc and there was no sure. satisfying kind of result or anything it was it was very artsy in that way sure and because I'm not a script writer, but I am a person who has a video camera and <laughs> editing software and friends like Bob and uh, I don't know if you know Mike and Beth, like they were all in it. And I just I just basically got my close friends and harangued them into being in it, even though they're not actors. And um, so along those lines, uh, Hollywood productions, right. particularly I think movies, it's a similar thing. There are so many different things that need to be done in order for something to be in a theater. You have to have advertising. You have to have producers. You have to have money. You have to have people who know how to extract money from other people. You have to have money who have who have money. You have to you have to have stars. You have to have agents. You have to have casting. You have to have grips. You have to have cameras (laughs) that work. You have to have an editor. You have to have a sound guy. You have to have a sound editor. You have to have a guy who a legal person who figures out what songs you can use and and you have to have someone who can fucking wet the streets for God's sake. (laughs) Um, And you have to have someone who writes a script. And so there's a thousand things you need. One of the things is a script. Yeah. You just, and the thing is you just need a script, right? It doesn't even need to be good. Just like you don't need to have a direct, you need to have a director. Yeah. The director doesn't have to be good, but you have to have a director. You don't have to have, you have to have a casting agent, but the casting agent doesn't have to be good. You need to have an actor. So of, of a thousand things that have to go right, it's very easy for the script to go wrong. Yeah. Because it's not it's not necessary for a good script for a script to be good in order for something to be put in the theaters right. but, not, but you need yeah, someone absolutely. but you ab, there are some things you absolutely need yeah uh, what do you think those things are uh, well i mean the, you can look at the uh, at the room for example <laughs> like you you right, do, that's a good example yeah i mean like you actually need to have a finished product that is like certain running length so and, so you need to have uh, to get there, you need to have someone who's willing to see it through. Yeah. Um, so uh, have the money to, and yeah. you need to have someone with money. Yeah. And you need to have cameras. Right. And you need to have like willing participants. Right. Okay. There are certain things you have to have. Right. You do not have to have a good script. That's true. Yeah. And so, you know, you roll the dice a billion times. Um, you know, there's going to be a lot of movies that are in the theaters, and you're going to be like. How did that script, but we as watchers, we experience the script most intimately. Like we're, that's the thing we notice the most. We don't notice the grip. We don't see the producers haggling to get money. We don't notice the, the writer being told by five other, you know, producers like, ah, I don't like that scene. Let's change that. The writer has to compromise their story in order to please the people who are paying the money. (laughs) Or they don't see the, the, the conversation between the production people and the director and the script. It's like, Hey, you know, you have a scene in here that is going to be half of our budget. We can't shoot that scene. You have to rewrite that scene. You don't have the conversations between the script and the 
you know, Tom Cruise, who's like, I'm not going to say that line. And <laughs> yeah. now he has to, you know, rewrite the script. And so you don't see that. What you see is the script, the end result. Yeah. And, uh, and we often go like, what the fuck happened there? Yeah. Yeah. Especially because like, it, it's so delicate because you could even read something on paper and be like, oh, that's a pretty cool story. And then you try to film it and it doesn't film well at all. Right. You know, and it's just because, well, the story was neat, but the dialogue actually doesn't lead to what the story is. And and the descriptions that were in there, because there's all these descriptions, right? Like, actually, when we filmed them, it was either really hard or it didn't quite make sense. Why was this nighttime? The shit, you know, all those kinds of things. Or the day they shot this particular important scene, the the actors were kind of off or the lighting wasn't quite right or something was in the background that they can't edit out and they just have to take that scene out because right. it's so and now this now in the middle of this movie there's this weird jump um so uh so yeah the the pet peeve of mine is bad scripts not now i understand why it happens like yeah. i just explained but what i don't understand is that uh, along the way through their production process which sometimes could take like 10 years um, of from you know a director saying yes I want to make this book into a movie to it actually being in the theaters that you don't have periodic check-ins of just like is this a good script yeah. or are we is our process of writing the script actually a good one right. should we ask a hundred people to read this script and that know how what scripts are like they're experts on this sure. and get feedback from them because that's not what I see what I see are you know two or one person sitting in a room. And just like coming up with stuff, and then everyone just kind of goes along with it. I mean, sure. if you've ever been on a, on a movie production team, there's not a lot of opportunity for people to go like, I don't think this script is any good. You know, people <laughs> just do their job. Yeah. You know, they're like, well, I, I'm, I'm, I have faith. And, and it's also hard to determine. That's why you need experts to read a script. Right. Because you can read a script and go like, like if you read Napoleon Dynamite <laughs> um, as a script, you'd be like, that's a stupid movie. Like, right. that is dumb. Right. Um, or, or imagine actually, like, reading 2001. Right. Like, little to no dialogue for the first, I don't know how long, yeah. and it's just these descriptions. Like, And not only that, descriptions of, like, how the hell are we going to film this? Like, wait, what? Right. It opens on the moon. Some monkeys are jumping around, and there's a monolith. Now, <laughs> I'm going to agree... <laughs> 2001 is not one of my favorite movies. Oh, sure. But, you know, it, it, it's a, it's an example of like, this is, in, in fact, a crutch that I bet you gets used so often. Well, you don't understand. You'll see the finished product. It'll all make sense. Right. And sometimes they're right and sometimes yeah. they're wrong. Anyway, so why, what are the, what are the problems with scripts that you see? Like what, what kinds of uh, premises or, um, lack of understanding of process of writing a script that ends up resulting in a bad movie. I mean, not being an expert on any of this, but like for, from my perspective, uh, one thing that comes to mind is when there's some sort of like good idea in the script, like, you know, like a good concept, you know, like they have a good idea. Like turns out that aliens don't come from outer space. They come from the center of the earth. And little Billy finds it when he's digging a hole in his backyard. Oh, that's cute. It's going to be a cute kids movie with aliens from the center. That's neat. But that's all it's got. So when actually the story, there is no middle beginning, middle end. It's just a, a right. neat idea. And you know? when you're doing the elevator speech to the producers and everyone else, 
it it has that ring of appeal right that will get people to get on board and right. and maybe you know invest money but none of those people are actually good at going well okay but what's the story yeah cuz the you know Pixar for example almost universally writes excellent stories yeah. but they're always in some sort of weird world yeah you know we're going to make a bug's life i mean yeah. a lot of people didn't like i i think it's a still it's a, fine. Good, it's it's a fine. good movie yeah um or let's just stick to toy story one everyone sure. agrees that's an excellent movie uh, it's totally based on a premise what if toys right. when you weren't looking actually like were alive and right. talked to each other and and cared about their owners you know right. and um, there's always a what if and the what ifs are always interesting in those yeah. pixar movies and like, and, and the, 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 the toys get separated from their owners right. and they have to do a road trip essentially back to the house you know right. for safety anyway, what if monsters under the bed are real right but they don't like start being good they got to go to like school and stuff yeah and it's a corporation like the 50s yeah. and they and so so that so sounds neat yeah those it starts with that but if you look at toy story for example you have at its foundation once you get past the the gimmick you have two characters buzz and right and um woody who are in conflict over very human yeah. uh, things, and there's there's a there's a a, a believable a beginning to that conflict. Yeah. There's a believable progression to that conflict, and then there's a satisfying resolution yeah, yeah. to the conflict. It's not confusing. It's not unbelievable. There's no distractions. There's yeah. there's no you know weird. B, C, D, E, F story mm-hmm. involved. It's a streamlined... Now, when they first did the first pass at that script, I'm sure they had all sorts of weird things in there, but they honed it. Right. They they worked it. They had other people look at the script. They consulted. They played around with different things. Um, they storyboarded. You know, they worked that story yeah. over and they and like, oh yeah, this is this is how we want this beat to go here, and this is what and you know what that storyline it's too distracting. Let's get rid of it. Yep. You know, da da da, and and they in in along with the gimmick and along with all the other things that have to get done in order to make a you know a production the the technical side the the money side. They produced a classic. Actually, and maybe that is the key. Maybe that's more important than anything is if your script has those very human, because we're humans, we're the people watching, very human relatable moments, you almost don't need the gimmick. As an example, what's Pulp Fiction about? What's What's the gimmick? The elevator pitch. Yeah. Well, which story bit do you pick? Right. Oh, there's this uh, mystery box with something golden that's... Some, wait, no, no. No, it's all these little vignettes right. of these very human c- concerns. Like, like you know, these little mundane things that you could put in a different setting. Almost like, dude, you made a mess in my kitchen. My wife's going to come home. How do we clean it up? Right. Or or like, oh, I'm, I'm insecure because I, I, I have been in the ring for a while. I don't know if I'm going to win my next fight. Or, you know, things like this. Th- those become the pieces in the movie. Or, you know, and again, and of course, in Quentin's style, it's exaggerated. It's like someone's almost getting raped by this and that. But still, it's very like people talking to each other about their problems and their insecurities and their, you know. Right. Hateful Eight. You have eight people in a snow-covered lodge. Yeah. And um, someone was murdered. Yeah, and none of them know who did it. Right, and and it 
proceeds from there of yeah. like how do we figure out who who did it you know yeah. uh, knives out similar yeah. thing someone dies and a investigator comes to the house and tries to figure out who did it and we go from there and it's very simple this the the the, the, so the, true. the script is very simple that's why i don't like the new bond movies because i feel like they're going more for um mood and moments yeah. than a a compelling story i mean you know it's people have ripped apart the bond movies on youtube enough but uh, like the the most recent yeah. one, it's like what was the most recent one? Like a quantum Spectre. Assault? Spectre. Yeah. Um, but the one before that, maybe uh, it was Spectre. Was Spectre, Spectre the one? Was the last one they did. What, was that the one with Christoph Waltz? Yes. And they're in the with desert. the fun house at the end. Yeah. Yes. Um, like uh, they were obviously going for kind of like effect and mood and yeah. and I don't know because to me when I watch that I've seen the movie twice and I'm like I walk away going like what. Like I don't understand, right. especially when you really look at the motivation of of the of everyone. You're just yeah. like, why are they doing this? Well, and if you compare the Scott, the size, the scale of that movie versus the Casino Royale scale, Casino Royale is a, a much smaller story, but but it's it it's a lot more right. human and based. So, so I I think that these um, franchises, you know, Iron Man and you know, they they get up their own ass and they're just like, we got to make it bigger, bigger. We got to make it more like more consequences and yeah. more impressive, right. you know, rather than actually writing good stories. And that's why sometimes franchises aren't a good di- good idea. You notice with Pixar, for example, they could have just driven all of those movies into the ground. They could have Bug Life two, three, four. They could have had. I mean, um, they did that a bit, right? Cars two was not good. Well, Cars one wasn't that. Cars the Cars series for whatever reason is more. Towards kids, fair you know? enough. But at least Cars One, which was a copy of that, the uh, Mr. Hollywood or whatever Doc Hollywood, mm. at least that one is still rooted in like a thing. Yeah. This this star kind of loses his step, and he's got to refine, rekindle his his what makes him special by by going smaller, finding his roots in a small town. Yeah. You know, it's it's a, a relatable thing. Right. By the time he got it gets to Cars Two, all of a sudden there's spies and there's crazy other cars and there's like it's a spy, it's a James Bond thing. Like yeah, wait, yeah. what? Now Toy Story they did four, yeah. uh, but imagine you know Inside Out Two or something. Or um, what are some other good oh, things? Or up, up too. Right. But like Toy Story is a good example of part of the reason why I feel it works that they did those. Not only are they, you know, keeping good storytelling, but they actually didn't try to go like much bigger. You know what I mean? Like you, you could have yeah. gone global with like yeah, the no. toy syndicate I, well, and the, you know. Right. They didn't go that much bigger. Right. right. Like a very tempting thing to do with Toy Story would be to be like. And then they got discovered. You right. know what I mean? And what was really behind the, like, now there's midichlorians in the water. Yeah. And, like, who right. knows why That's the toys what, are coming to life. Yeah, exactly. God. <laughs> you know, but what they did is they just said, okay, we ha- again, we got to start with the story. Yeah. Um, if it involves a fantastical element, I guess that's fine. But um, it doesn't have to, you <laughs> right. know. It, it just has to involve characters that we care about interacting with each other. There's sometimes a bad guy, sometimes a bad guy we can relate to or whatever. There's a series of action scenes that um, are uh, escalating and that kind of thing. And good stories. But, you know, I just find that so many movies today just lack that that ability. And, you know, one of the things that I think about is um, I have a friend, Brian Yorkey, who 
you know, wrote the 13 Reasons Why script, and he's he's he wrote a wonderful Tony Award-winning musical on Broadway called uh, Next to Normal that was about a, a, a family with a mother who suffered from bipolar. Um, and I saw wow. him, I was sort of peripherally with him and aware of his process as he was developing that script. He also wrote a, um, uh, even though he's white, he wrote a, a musical about Asian American experience. Oh, wow. And it's called something tracks um cultural appropriation <laughs> <laughs> um but it uh it has japanese filipino chinese in it and it is just a beautiful script and and the thing that you notice is you know on the stage is like you don't have special effects yeah you don't have scene changes really you gotta right. you gotta make a story interesting and it's got to be really interesting because it's also far away and they're yeah. screaming, you know, it's, it's, it's a very, it's, it really relies on emotional beats and human interaction because that's all right. you got. And when a good script is, you know, gripping and you're involved and you're, you know, along the ride for it, you, you really see the, the genius of the script yeah. and also the commonalities, you know, it's got to have this kind of emotional beat, you know, it's, there's a, there's very common emotional beats that good scripts will have. Sure. You know, the, when the hero, the, the protagonist is at his lowest or her lowest and she's all alone and she's questioning everything and she's so far from home and she doesn't know how she's going to get back. You know, those, those, they're very common, you know, and, story elements. And to not write a script based yeah. on those very, you know, solidly tried and true principles is frustrating to me because i'm like you could like ad astra for example right like what the fuck was that right you could follow the things that actually and the, by the way the reason they work is because those are our feelings those are our emotions those are the things we go through on a daily basis and in our lives a, a counter example to ad astra is most wes anderson stories yeah because Again, you know, you ask, like, what's Bottle Rocket about? What's the gimmick? What's the... Th it, it, it's not. But yet, those those little ups and downs are there. The the lowest point is there. They come back out of it. You know, like, though, there is that storytelling, but it's all about the little interactions and the conversations. And yeah. The and to be specific, it's been a while since I've seen Bottle Rocket, but I'll talk about Royal Tannenbaums, for example. It's a similar kind of script, although yeah. it's bigger. Um, you know, there's a... You could say like, well, what is the plot? Well, the plot is is the family is coming from distance and hurt, right. and they are in a. Each character is in a their own individual story arc of one kind of finding themselves, and also two like communicating to other people how they've been affected. Right, but imagine I'm the busy and forgiveness and redemption from the other people. You know, Royal, the, right. the father. You know, the the story with um, you know Ben Stiller at the end. It it all it's just beautiful writing. It and, is and, beautiful. And it, ben Stiller just spent Dad. You know, I, I might tear up just thinking about it. You know, Ben Stiller's just like Dad. It's been a tough year. You know, because yeah. because his, yeah. his wife died and stuff. But know? imagine I'm the busy executive. I'm in the elevator with you, and you're tearing up, and I'm like, You have ten seconds, kiddo. Pitch me your gimmick. Yeah. You're like, well, it's this family well, that's trying to come back together. And I'm like, boring. You're out of here. Okay. The fine. next guy. But but the thing is, is that 
with Wes Anderson, for example, he has trust from the producers right. because right. he's he's already made good movies, right. and and the producers, I'm sure, would love to get involved in that shit, but they're like, yes, no. Exactly. Or Wes Anderson's like, no, no. If you if you want me to make a movie and you want to be a part of this this you know, this thing, then you got to let me do what I'm going to do. And I think that's part of it is that he did it independently to start with. I think it's hard to get in that elevator with the executive and pitch him human reality. Well, now we <laughs> have know? Netflix and Hulu and all these right. other places that will, right. that have shit ton of money. Yeah. I heard next this year, 2020, um, like 20 of our best auteur movie mm-hmm. makers have Netflix movies that are coming out. Wow. Like, um, I can't remember the list, but yeah. but big names, you know, of major movie makers, yeah. um, because Netflix just is overflowing with money. Yeah. Um, that uh, it's it's made possible, and and they and Netflix tends not to get involved. You know, they tend to be like, dude, go for it. You know, yeah. what do we know? Like, please, just do what you do best. You know, yeah. and. Um, so and there's less desperation because Netflix wins no matter what. Right. And that's that's kind of the people hate Netflix, you know, they're sort of a, you know, the big guy in town. But there's a huge benefit to us as consumers because yeah. um the the tickets are already sold. You know, all the customers of Netflix today are likely to be customers in 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 10 months. Yeah. So when Netflix uh says here go ahead Martin Scorsese, um, here's money. Here is more money than you've ever had. Go ahead and make a three and a half hour epic about the yeah. Irishman and and all these technical things to de-age people and everything, which was a little awkward, by the way. But not I terrible. liked it. Yeah, I, it, it wasn't yeah. bad. Stacy didn't like it, but um, and it actually took me a while to get into that movie. Like the first half hour, I was just like, "This is boring." But then uh-huh. I got it, kind of got into it. But anyway, so Netflix can do that with confidence because yeah. it's just like. Uh, we are guranteed to make money. Now, if yeah. Scorsese went to his normal producers, uh, they'd be like, how much is money going to cost? Or how much is this movie going to cost? They'd be like, well, half a, half a million dollars or half a billion dollars. Yeah. Literally like $500 million. Okay, so these people with, <laughs> with money in their bank accounts got to be like, okay, we... We we spend the money before we know we before we even see the product. We don't even know if Scorsese <laughs> is going to make something any good. And it's not going to three and a half. Are, are you kidding me? Get out of right. here! Right? Who's going to see? Get out of here! Who's going to see that? You know, like uh, and plus, you can sell less tickets because uh, you could put two movies into the that, right. to that span of that time slot right. in a the movie theater. So. Um, uh, it's a gamble, you know, right. and so well, how about we do two hundred fifty million? You know, so you you got to make that. Netflix has so much money because we as consumers, you know, sign up, you know, month to month. That I think we're getting, uh, and I think we're it's only we're only at the beginning of this process. Sure, um, I think you know it's it's now there's downside. You know, I actually have been going to the movie theater less, which sure. I think is kind of a bummer because I it, it is sad. It, I, I don't want movies to go away. You know, yeah. And then there's a lot of streaming services, and at some point, some of them are going to not be as popular. Well, did you see the Peacock streaming services coming yeah. out? Yeah. Is that like NBC? Yeah. Are they going to have like like um, Seinfeld and Friends shit? reruns. But isn't Friends by Disney Plus? Doesn't Disney Plus own Friends? Does it? I thought it did. Oh, I don't anyway, know. Anyway, other kinds of things. So so I, I made a little list here of like why scripts are bad. Um, one is, is too many cooks in the kitchen. Too many cooks, too many cooks. Uh, when you have, as so I, I can relate to this on one level, which is that, for example, this podcast, I guess, um, is, is like this. But 
a better example is um, the, the program at my university. Yeah. So my educational program uh, has many people involved. There's program assistants, you have deans, you have chairs, you have professors, you have work studies, and of course all the students. You have on-site. You know, there's, just, there's like hundreds of people. So when I became program director, um, I was like, you know what? I can't do this job all myself. I need to delegate. I would say delegate it out, right? And so I, so I really tried to delegate out all these jobs because I just saw all these professors getting paid a quite, you know, enough money anyway. And I knew from my own experience being in that position prior that they had extra time that they could do. Well, the thing that I learned over time was that um, it's hard when you don't have full control or full visibility on the full issue to do anything or to know the right thing to do. And so a lot of times as chair, as program director, I just had to do 98% of the jobs myself because I was the only one who had the power who had the vision, and also if if I delegate a job to you know if I delegate one job to one professor and another job to another professor, what if they reinvent the wheel for each other or they go in different directions? Yeah. So oft, so I just learned over time. It's like man, as program director, I just have to do everything myself, and it, that's the most efficient way to do this. And in fact, it might not even ever get done if unless I just do it all myself, and so. I think it's a similar thing when it comes to a script is that you need to have at least one mind who is massively in control of the thing. You know, being in a band, yeah. we can relate to that as well. Um, being in a band with multiple uh, people who are like all the bands that I've been in, except the band I was in with you, um, had essentially me or someone else who was a, very much the dominant personality. Mm -hmm. The person who dictated the the main decisions where we would play yeah. when what songs we would play and early in my band life i always wanted to be in like a beatles kind of situation where everyone participated and there was you know and divvied up the jobs but i learned over time that that's hard to do because you, you you're pulling in different directions and the somehow. beatles wasn't even like that right you know <laughs> in the beginning it was mainly john yeah. and also brian epstein brian, yeah. and then later it was mainly paul yeah. And so the uh, now you and I were in a band, and we had a, a third guy who wrote and and was a singer, and so we had three singer songwriters, and you know we quickly flew apart. By the that way, that was challenging, yeah. <laughs> and then it was just you and me, yeah. Um, but you were mainly in charge. You know, you had all the gear. Practices were at your house. Sure, yeah. Um, you were in charge of the recording. So you kind of need a little bit of an epicenter. Yeah. Even if you have a strong contribution team. Yeah. I wonder how it works in... So in script writing, I think you, you need to have that. And, well, uh, I, but I wonder how it works like with the Coen brothers or with uh, Starsky and Hutch. No, 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 like famous collaboration duos. You I know? think that for some people, like the Coen brothers, they have such chemistry uh -huh. um, that th they manage. But I wonder sometimes, even with them, if there isn't at least one person who's kind of... In control of the process. That's very more. likely. You know the South Park guys, Matt and Trey. Um, I, f I always forget which one. I think Trey, but whatever case, one of them is the one that makes it all possible yeah. and makes it happen. It's it's um it's the blonde guy. Is that Trey? Yeah, the guy that doesn't have the crazy crispy hair. The yeah. crazy like the guy who does Cartman. Yeah, but the crazy crispy hair. 
his point is he's the one that says no to people and he's the hard ass. Right. And not only that, but obviously he contributes the vo- he also his seems, voices. And his, he also seems more immature and more irresponsible. Probably. But yeah. so his point was that like the show would not exist without the one dude actually being in charge of when we're going to do what and actually what are we going to do, right? Yeah. But then they had some, they, they in fact showed some examples because they'll be in interviews and then people will be asking them stuff and the one dude was like, yeah, maybe. And he's like, no, we'll never do that. The other guy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and so like you need that balance. Yeah, certainly. So but, there's a divvying up of, of the roles. But um, so it's hard to know and there's yeah. exceptions. But when it comes to script writing today, especially yeah. with these epic films, Avengers, Star Wars, blah, 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 there tend... There's, there tends to be this system that the producers kind of set forth where it's like, well, you know, we'll just get a bunch of writers. Yeah. You know, someone will write it. Other people will punch it up. And it's a committee. Yeah. And that rarely results in a good script. And you can tell, like, it is possible to see the committee members as you're watching the movie. Right. You know, the best movies all of us love were written, sometimes often directed as well, yeah. by one person. Yeah. Um, so, uh, and, and part, part of it is it's almost a self-selection because, you know, it takes so much work to do something like that, right? To write it, come up with the idea, direct it, get everyone involved, do it. So that's going to like weed out casuals, let's say, right? But of the ones that remain, we only love the ones we love, right? So, but, but the nice thing is that it was that person's foot forward, not clouded by other people's half opinions who don't have as much skin in the game. And so that's what I think makes it sort of magical. It's it's like you can kind of feel the sweat, the blood, the tears from that one auteur. Yeah. And the vision and the, um, you know, I, I guess as a metaphor, imagine if five people walked up to you and decided to tell you a story that they went through. Right. You know, like, oh, my God, you're not going to believe what happened. So um, we were going, you know, to school. No, wait, no, wait, no, let no, me no, tell no, you yeah, the story. No, no, yeah. So you, you forgot to say, you know, and then the third person, you know, it's like as a listener, you're like, God damn it. Like, just <laughs> will one person figure out the story and tell me, you know, it's a similar yeah. thing. with the week. Other th- problems with scripts is trying to please too many groups of people. Yes. Um, another one is trying to cram too much into the movie. Yes. And this is a problem for even, you know, one one man or one woman writers. Mary Queen of Scots was kind of like this, the movie last year uh, with Sorcerer Ronan and uh, uh, Marco Robbie. Uh, it, it starts off pretty pretty cool and, and it has a ton of potential, but they're trying to cram essentially the entire story of Mary Queen of Scots into one movie, which, and they're trying to be, you know, accurate to history. Mm. You know, oftentimes... Uh, the best way to do these biopics is to pick like a chapter in yeah. someone's life, you right. know, rather than trying to sum up the entirety of someone's life. Yeah. Um, uh, Ant-Man and the Wasp, for example, the I first, see that one. the first Ant-Man was a small story yeah. that didn't try to cram too much in there. It just had the story of this guy who becomes yeah. a superhero. Um, Ant-Man and the Wasp was also trying to incorporate other movies sort of mm. into the movie. And, it was just cramming all alien covenant, for example, (laughs) just, it's trying to cram. Oh yes. It was trying to cram so many different things. And it's just like, so what's the story? You know, what, who am I caring about? The alien versus predator movies. Yeah. (laughs) Um, inability to challenge the audience is, is another thing like the mule movie with, um, 
uh, Clint Eastwood. Yeah. Uh, has it's pretty. I I didn't. I actually mildly liked the movie, but they made the lead character into basically a flawless human being. It's played by Clint Eastwood. Clint mm-hmm. Eastwood movies suffer from this a lot of times. They, the lead character often is like this. Perfect. This perfect, yeah. you know, uh, and it's often an old white man, you know. Yeah. Uh, Triple Frontier with um, Ben Affleck and uh, um, uh, Poe Dameron. For, uh, anyway, it's a it's a mm-hmm. Sicario Day of the Tell Soldado. The, the, the one you told me about. It's terrible. <laughs> it's, it's 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 they don't want to challenge the audience. You know, the first Sicario challenges the audience a little right. bit. One, they don't lay out the story very clearly. You're kind of like, what's going on? Yeah. The other thing is just like, so is um, Benicio Del Toro, is he a bad guy or a good right, guy? Right, right, right. In uh, uh, Sicario Day of Soldado, it's very clear who the bad guy and the good guy is. Um, special effects over story. Yeah. Alita Battle Michael Angel. Michael Bay, anyone. Huh? Michael Bay. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Alita Battle Angel that came out sure. last year was like that. Um, yeah. The story is not interesting, but the special effects are kind of interesting. Aquaman, I would argue. Have you seen that yet? I Remember I tried to oh, – in fact, you sat me down to watch the first 15 minutes and then we stopped. Oh, really? Yeah. Was that at your house? Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom – uh, you know, it's all <laughs> it's all special effects over story. Yeah. Pacific Rim Uprising. Didn't you know, see that. That's the, funny. I haven't seen a lot of these. The, the first Pacific Rim had, uh-huh. uh, again, it was one of those gimmicky things, but they had a story, kind of. I mean, okay. it wasn't fantastic, but it, it was... It was a story, you know, Pacific Rim Uprising. It's just like... Yeah, a lot of sequels go so off the rails, yeah. man. So off the rails. Yeah. Um, also, not consulting with experts like Ad Astra or Gypsy, the TV show. Um, thinking too hard or not thinking enough about the ending at Astra. <laughs> I think Us kind of suffers from that too. I think sure. Us kind of it thought too hard about the ending, and it kind of it kind of turned me off the, yeah. the the very ending. Sure. I think if they if he would have made it smaller, it would have been more appealing to me somehow. I don't. Oh, here's an example of that. So you can imagine how the movie American Psycho could have had like this epic ending with. A police chase and like, and he he's just like, you're not gonna take me alive, and like he becomes like. Instead, it's like the most mundane of endings. He's, he's back with his buddies, yeah. like nothing happens, and he just says a couple lines, and the movie ends. Right, but it's so much. Right, powerful, so so powerful. one, the script writer was not afraid to challenge the audience. Right, they're like, you know, someone must have said, well, it, so that's the ending. Um. I love endings like that. You know, I, I actually often will love those endings where they just, it just, the screen goes black. Yeah. And you don't, like with Sopranos, yeah. for example. And you're don't just. Don't stop. <laughs> you're totally challenged by that yeah. ending. You're just, it's not, it doesn't give you, it doesn't spoon feed it right. to you. Um, and some people are going to hate that. I love that. And t- critics tend to like that too. Yeah. Um, you know. The idiot rabble tend to not like it. <laughs> Just joking. Um, the other thing is too many yes men. So yes, episode one through three, Star Wars. Oh, I, because okay, so that's a perfect example of like it was one writer of the script, right. you know, pretty much, and technically someone who had previously written interesting things for a movie, right? right. But then what went wrong? Right? It's all yes, sir. Yeah. Everything you say is golden, sir. Oh my god, that's so brilliant. That's the best idea. Because everyone around you is your employee. Yeah. And, and had a certain amount of awe be, from what you did, right. you know? Or um and the last 
thing that I came up with here in terms of what makes bad scripts is being completely out of touch. Like uh, 9-11 with Charlie Sheen. Have you seen this movie? <laughs> no. God, it's so <laughs> awful. I mean, it's just a it's just a completely out of touch oh, man. writer of a script or, I don't know, everyone on that movie was just completely out of touch with like how this would come across, uh-huh. I guess. And the tone deafness of some scenes, oh, you know, um, again, there are people who are completely out of touch Yeah, and sometimes they happen to write scripts and sometimes they happen to get other completely out of touch people to give them money to make completely out of touch productions. Yeah. As a, there are so many different hate watch movies that I want to watch with you. Nine eleven, twenty seventeen 2017 with, with, with Charlie Sheen. That's one of them. Uh, number two is, have you seen uh, Dolomite, the movie? No. With with Eddie Murphy. Is that the recent Oh, he just it just came out, right? It's a wonderful movie. Okay. But it's a it's a, a basically about like a the room guy. Uh what's his name? Oh yeah. Uh, uh whatever that guy is. Yeah. So there was a, a you know, a black guy in the seventies who made all these black And that was his name? Dolomite? Well that was his character. Okay. His real name was Rudy Ray Moore. But he made all these um movies. That Tommy Wiseau. Tommy Wiseau, yeah. Uh, but he made all these movies in the 70s that were, uh, you know, very B movie and oh. lots of like silly karate and silly sex scenes and silly shit. Okay. And if we watch these, these <laughs> movies, I guarantee you we would just be like, that is the most ridiculous scene. They're but probably like the, the Boogie Nights movie that he was making. Exactly yeah. like that. And, they're, and these are real movies that, oh, that wow. actually like were successful, you know. Wow. And and half tongue in cheek and half not, yeah. you know. And but you have to watch Dolomite first to to see the behind the scenes, okay. like how these movies got made. And and I just want to watch these movies with you and just like laugh our asses. All off. right, we're gonna set it up. Yeah. All right. Well, that does it for that unscripted episode of Psychology in Seattle. That's only for you patrons. We should add a script. <laughs> thank you for joining us, and thank you for being patrons. And please take care of yourself because you deserve it. 